there's there's far too many students that are you know getting like pulled out of their of their their classrooms to again receive well-intentioned services but in an exclusive way some might make the argument that well it's temporary you know it's short term and that you know once they have enough english you know then they can you know be fully mainstream then uh, no, that doesn't <laughs> that doesn't work for me. We we can do better, you know, to to offer you know service in the least restrictive environment. We could we can do better to think critically about bending our systems to reach students in a more human way. Today on the ML Chat podcast, we sit down with Tim Blackburn to talk about how he ended up in education the key practices he uses in his classroom, and what took him across the country from New York to Oregon to teach multilingual learners. Tim has so much to share that we think you will find insightful, interesting, and helpful. We hope you enjoy this conversation with Tim Blackburn. All right, welcome to the show, Tim. We're excited to have you here today. Um, Before we get started, Tell us a little bit about yourself, if you don't mind. Who is Tim Blackburn? Well, hi, Justin. Thanks. Um, well, I'm. I'm. You could call me Mr. Tim or or Mr. Blackburn. You know, the the way that I identify really are kind of go back to my my classroom days, right? And um, you know, and then the things that that brought me into into teaching, you know. Um, I'm father of two, uh, and I, I currently serve as a multilingual director in Tiger Twalden Schools. But you know, like before, before all of that, you know, I, I grew up with three, you know, three siblings, uh, really close to my my brothers and my sister, the oldest of four. And and so, Tim, how did you how did you get into education? Like, were your parents educators? Or no. What was it that drew you into education? No, and in fact, I think for for my family, it was a little bit disappointing that I became <laughs> a teacher. I, you know, I do recall a lot of you know, uh, you know, raised eyebrows when when I uh, became a teacher. Uh, you know, and the because we don't have any in my family, um, I can't uh, point to a single educator uh, in my in my background. And and in fact, uh, you know, now. My brother is a college professor, right? Um, my my sister-in-law is an is an art teacher. You know, now there's there's more of us in the ranks, but uh, before me, no, uh, we, <laughs> we didn't have any any teachers. You, you so paved the way. No, not not at all a family profession. But I mean, I wouldn't. I it's it's really clear to me that there was a kind of a, a a fork in the road. You know, before I joined the Peace Corps, I was working for a hedge fund. On Park Avenue, and um, you know, I, I think it's fair to say I didn't enjoy emerging markets, distressed debt, you know, lifestyle. Yeah, <laughs> and while it might be like, you know, like kind of interesting from afar, um, I, I knew that's not really what I wanted to do, and so I, I joined the Peace Corps, which you know, for me, you know, being the eldest, you know. It was sort of a radical decision, and that you know, it was a decision that no one in my family wanted, and um, you know they they certainly let me know that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we weren't shy. How how did this 
hedge fund analyst mm-hmm. or yeah, that's what I was at the time. Yeah. Yeah. So how do how do you go from you know being an analyst in the in a hedge fund to joining the Peace Corps? I mean, that's a, that is pretty radical. I I think I'm with your mom or dad on that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. How did it, you get there? Well, I mean, radical in the sense that like a lot of people join the Peace Corps. Yes, right. It's not like I'm, <laughs> it's not like right, it was. This is not JFK. This is not JFK's Peace Corps. This, you know, this is kind of a well-worn path at this point. But the, right. the it was radical in the sense for for my family because I I, I think that if largely I did what was expected of me you know, mm-hmm. entirely. And what was expected of me was to, you know, it was to, to work where I was working at that time. That was sort of expected. Like I grew up in a place where, you know, you, you live on Long Island and then you travel into the city and you, you do a job and you, you really put a lot into that job to become successful at it. And success is measured in very, you know, in, in very sort of traditional, tangible ways. So the, the stuff one accumulates and the, and the capital one accumulates, et cetera. You know, that's sort of the, the, the cultural milieu in which I, I grew up. You know, you get on the Long Island Railroad early in the morning and you travel to the city and you slay at work and then you come home. And so, so what was yeah. it that happened? There, there, there had to have been. I didn't like happened. it. I didn't like it. I, I did. It wasn't filling me. It was exhausting me. And I was like, I'm 22 years old and I'm not happy. <laughs> it really wore on me. Um, I, I, you know, I, I graduated, I graduated from college kind of begrudgingly. Like I, I didn't feel really inspired by what I was doing and just felt listless. And like, I, you know, like I wasn't doing what I, you know, what I wanted. Um, and I, at that point, didn't really know what I want, what it was that I wanted. But I did know that I, I needed that I needed to get out, I needed to go do something. Yeah. And I met a Peace Corps recruiter in the, um, in the student union at school. And I was like, that seems interesting. I, you know, why don't I try that? And, you know, I had it kind of in my back pocket, you know, as the process was going and it took a while, you know, it's a bureaucratic process. And in the meantime, I needed something to do after, after graduation. So I, mm-hmm. you know, I, you know, <laughs> moved in with a buddy out in a, um, uh, like a little condo in like Long Beach, Long Island, commuting into the city. And um, boy, it, it wasn't fulfilling in the least. Um, mm. I mean, I could see like, you know, it, some people really like it and I, and I totally get it. Uh, it just wasn't for me. And so um, when I finally got the invitation to, you know, to serve in, in, in Guatemala, I was like, uh, how do I, how do I turn this down? <laughs> it seems like. Yeah, that's pretty exciting. I'm thinking about yeah. being 22 years old. That's, that's, that's a lot more exciting than, you know, distressed debt and uh, whatever it else you would you you had mentioned from the hedge fund perspective. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. And yeah. so mm-hmm. you got the call, they invited you down and you, you hopped on a plane and went down with three bags of luggage or like with a backpack. And it was basically a backpack. Fun. It was basically a backpack. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And what work did you do? How long were you down there? Um, I stayed as long as I could, Justin. I mean, that's the, that, that was the long and short of it is that I did everything in my power to stay. <laughs> 
<laughs> to stay down there. So I, I came back kicking and screaming. Uh, so um, I was down there for my, my 27 months. That's the typical service you know, period. So it's, you know, um, you know, three months of training plus two years of service, you know, um, start to finish. And I was lucky enough to extend my, 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 my tour, so to speak, in order to train incoming volunteers as they were going through their cycle. And, um, you know, I, I, I did everything I could to, you know, <laughs> to do another year. Um, and what ended up happening is that I, I extended for a bit and I got to do the training. And then I had applied to a fellowship called the Peace Corps Fellows. Um, and it's a, a brilliant program at Teachers College in, in New York City, in Columbia. And um, what the Peace Corps Fellows are all about is taking returned Peace Corps volunteers and turning them into classroom teachers to serve New York City schools. Mm-hmm. And they put you through a um, what could only be described as like a you know three month crash course in urban education. <laughs> And then you have an emergency license starting starting in September. So you arrive in May and you basically take the summer term. It's two, technically two terms of coursework, graduate coursework, plus commitments to your your cohort, uh, which are amazing. Actually, I love that was my favorite part of my Peace Corps Fellows experience was just being with my peers. Um, that's actually how I met Lisa. Lisa and I were in the same cohort. <laughs> that's how I, how I oh met my gosh. wife. Yeah, yeah. And um, and so, I mean, that was really the the long and short of it. Justin is, you know, I I came home because of this opportunity with the Peace Corps Fellows, and mm-hmm. so I got to study at Columbia, you know, basically part time, and then serve as a New York City school teacher full time. It makes me think of uh, the wonderful poem about taking the road less traveled and it made all the difference. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really neat. That's that, what a neat story. And it's, I love how, how deep you went. You were like, I'm going to get everything out of this experience that I can. I like, I'm loving this. You, you got into your moment. So then you came back, <clears throat> you, you enter into you know, a New York City classroom. And where did you start? Like, what class were you teaching, or what? Oh uh, man, gosh, it was hard. <laughs> it was really hard. Yeah, when I and I, uh, one of my favorite things to do as part of my current work is to, is to you know support you know young teachers, right? Because mm-hmm. it's you know you're it's, it's just you're just so fragile and vulnerable, right? Because it's so hard. There's so much to learn. There's so much thrown at you. And I remember this moment once where I was called into um, our assistant principal's office, you know, <laughs> Mrs. Teal. And Mrs. Teal said mm-hmm. to me, she said, Mr. Blackburn. <laughs> Mr. Blackburn. And she, um, she was asking me for my, my attendance records because she needed them for a conversation she was going to have with uh, a, stu- a student's family and and I remember saying to her what <laughs> <laughs> your attendance records and it was just like it had never occurred to me in my first few weeks as a classroom teacher like really 
like one of like the tangible things that you just have to do is have to you have to have attendance records and which is like <laughs> in hindsight which is like no duh you need to do that back then it was just like one of the you know myriad things that i didn't take into consideration you know as i was you know developing developing into a teacher and i, I just I, I mentioned that because like starting as a novice teacher at the Fordham Leadership Academy for Business and Technology in the Theodore Roosevelt Educational Campus on East Fordham Road in the Bronx. That did not like it did not factor into my <laughs> into my yeah. uh, like emergent practice. But yeah, I, I worked on uh, East Fordham Road right across the street from Fordham University. Um, a, a beautiful old um, school building called uh, Theodore Roosevelt. And this was right as Mayor Bloomberg uh, took big comprehensive high schools and kind of chopped them up into mini schools. And so um, I worked, you know, so what used to be a, you know, a student body of nearly 5,000, uh, you know, uh, I'm talking like, like literally 300 teachers in the building. Uh, it's a one square city block in size and five floors five, it is a humongous building mm. big Whoa. big giant um the ceilings i remember the ceilings are so high um just to open the windows you need like a like a, a 12 foot rod like oh a wooden pole. <laughs> and, and uh you know i i think about that experience really warmly in the sense that i mean i learned so much every day you know, from the tangible of a, of a, you know, the importance of keeping a grade book and an attendance record. <laughs> and, you know, like how beautiful it is to like, you know, to, to work with multilingual kids. I mean, that was my job. I, I served as our, our building's ESL teacher. You know, we, there were, and I shouldn't say teacher. Um, there were, there were three of us. Um, and, you know, as our team, you know, we, we, we ran like a pretty, um, you know, traditional sort of ESL support where we offered ESL class period at targeted proficiency levels. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, what I actually came to learn that is, man, my kids just really needed help in class, you know, outside of my, <laughs> outside of my classroom, you know, yes, you know, we could learn all of the, you know, the English they needed for success, you know, throughout their school day and outside of school. But it was really clear to me that like whatever we were doing in my space had to be portable into, into the rest of their school day. And so how could we help make their experience more accessible, more meaningful? And, um, you know, for my kids with the most em emergent English, that was a, a real challenge, you know, they spend the rest of their day, like, really hustling and what was it you know i imagine there was an experience that you had that first year with those students that made you realize that um <clears throat> or is yeah. it something that just kind of gradually happened what, well, it what wasn't was there was nothing gradual about it i mean it was like it was sort of in the air all the time i mean mm. you know you're you're new to the country you have this really awesome opportunity, you know, and 
and in the same and in the same breath you you miss your you know you know your your mom you miss your community mm -hmm. you, you miss everything super intensely and i i can't imagine really what that's like i mean i like when i was away in peace corps it was like i always knew i was coming back so it wasn't i didn't right. experience it in that way it's not a, not at all a comparison and and so being that support um, was a real gift, you know, in a sense that I, I did see it as my responsibility to create a safe space for, for all my students. Mm -hmm. And I also took the, you know, the, the responsibility of, you know, trying to help my students adjust to a system that really wasn't making much of an effort to adjust itself for them or to accommodate them in any way. And that right there, you know, like that sort of, that sort of mindset is, is really what kind of programmed me from, you know, from the, from the get go, um, you know, to, to challenge systems, right. You know, to, to do what I can, you know, within my sphere of influence, within my power to help create inclusive spaces. Because, you know, a you know, graduation, you know, high school graduation at that time required passing all five of the New York State uh, Regents examinations. They're you know, seminar summative exams that, you know, if you don't pass them, you don't accumulate the, the, the requisite um, credits for graduation. And so that right there is the definition of a gate of, of, of gatekeeping. And, you know, mm -hmm. despite what my students knew and were able to do, you know, writing in their native, you know, Bangla or, <laughs> or, or Spanish or, or French, um, you know, they had to do all those things you know, in, in English and granted, there were some, some exams in which they could take, they could take them in, you know, in their home language and express them, themselves in their home language. But um, notwithstanding this, it was a, a, a real gauntlet, right? A real challenge. And I, I took it really seriously to yes, create inclusive spaces, but also to equip my, my students with the skills they needed for success after high school that mattered that mattered so much to me. It's easy to see that this, this was like, this was a huge turning point for you, right? I mean, you had a couple turning points, but like to be in that classroom with those students to, to feel that strongly about how do I provide a safe place for the, for my students? How do I, you know, adjust, you know, do my best to help them adjust to a system that isn't going to work to adjust to them. I, I, I love this perspective. It's, it's a, uh, you know, that, that, that first year with Miss Teal as your assistant principal was a pretty powerful, <laughs> she was great. Pretty she, uh, formative experience. She's That's a great, great lady. Um, did yeah. you become the mayor in that classroom? Do you feel like, like, did you transition? Like, did that mayor personality that you weren't able to necessarily be with the hedge fund group, did that come back out? Do you feel like when you were in your classroom with your students? I was happy. I was really, I was really happy doing it um like genuinely happy and like while every you know like each day brought you know some sort of you know some sort of <laughs> felt like most days 
especially in your first year as a teacher, there's some sort of trauma. And you know, if you were to interview any of my students from those days, you know, I'm sure they would <laughs> they could tell you about all sorts of emotional meltdowns, you know, because it it's it's hard to really care about something and then not be good at it. Yeah. I knew that. a lot of frustration, right? Yeah, yeah, I knew that. And like, I knew I wasn't good at it. I knew I was trying really hard mm-hmm. and that mattered. Right. And, but, and my, I think my students knew that. Um, but I mean, you can basically like, you know, if you think about it, like how many children were sacrificed at the altar of my, <laughs> my development as a teacher. <laughs> And uh, yeah, but you they know, were, at least they were in, they were in a happy classroom with somebody who cared a lot about them. But that is that's a funny perspective. How long did it take you? Do you feel like we're until you got to the point where you were like, maybe you didn't say to yourself because I know how humble you are that you're really good at it. But like, when did you feel like you got to a point where you are now really effective in the classroom? I remember, I remember one morning, like it was in the mornings in particular when like. There, there's just really anxious times, you know, like mm-hmm. I remember like planning lessons and I'm in a lesson planner on the D train and I'm, you know, kind of rocking side to side and I'm three coffees into my morning and I am agitated, nervous, unprepared. I got to make copies. Is the train going to get there on time? Well, maybe if I run from the D train 12 blocks to school, maybe I'll make it in time. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. And so like uh, that sort of like very very palpable sort of anxiety I, I still hold on to that I can still feel it it's very very visceral to me. But mm-hmm. and I mentioned that because you know by I remember moments in like the spring of my third year of teaching where I can like walk to school and grab a bacon egg and cheese on the way and kind of <laughs> have a leisurely morning it wasn't like I, I wasn't like super agitated or you know or anxious um and it, uh, you know i think at, at that point you know lisa and i were you know were engaged right and so we had you know kind of like nice mornings together walking to the train and then we would go about our, our different directions she would go to the east bronx and i go to the north bronx and so um i i remember that really fondly and it was very much a turning point, you know, like once, once I unlocked a, a couple of just key practices that helped me feel more comfortable in the classroom and actually gave my classroom, my class direction. Right? And, yeah. and I wonder like if that had a lot to do with that sort of direction, you know, it had a lot to do with the, you know, just like the, very tangible improvements and things like classroom management, you know, like kind of yeah. the, 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 the emotional experience my students had in my classroom. So it's interesting to think, I mean, this is a little bit out of the box thinking here, but <clears throat> it reminds me a little bit of, of uh, Keanu Reeves in the matrix when he had his matrix moment and he realized like he could bend backwards and slow time down and do whatever it was yeah. that he did when he bent all the way back. Yeah, exactly. And, and it's like everything slowed down. Right. And, and you weren't needing three coffees to, you know, get drove up the energy to get to where you needed to go. And, um, but it makes me wonder just a little bit, you know, like, you know, 
we read about that study that was done that um, that is quoted in in Outliers by uh, Malcolm Gladwell. Yes, thank you, yeah, uh-huh. by Malcolm Gladwell. He quotes that study about the ten thousand hours, and it's just interesting to think of like how many hours you probably would have had in either preparing to teach or teaching or thinking about your teaching at that point. You know, being three years into it, you might have been fairly close to that. I mean, maybe ten thousand hours. My my buddy Rosie Santana, she's a a brilliant teacher coach in 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 Idaho. The way she describes it is that it's either it feels like super clunky and mechanical, and and so that is a sort of burning the candle at both ends. Where like again, I wasn't my 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 best self as I'm cutting my teeth in the profession, and so like none of my practices were really informed by. by evidence or what we know works at that time it was just a lot of a lot of trial by fire you know and and over time and thanks to um really uh, thanks to the mentorship of of one coach in particular that helped me get to a place where um i can think more critically about my planning and to actually Mm. um simplify my planning his name's John Balby. He was an adjunct professor at Teachers College, and he was our primary shepherd in the ESOL and the ESL cohort um, among me and my peers. And you know, to a person in my cohort, we revere John. Um, you know, not just for what he taught us in class, but for those of us that were lucky enough to have him as a classroom coach and mentor. I mean. He was he was warm, generous because he saw the effort and supportive, you know, and like he, you know, he helped really simplify a very complex process. That's so cool. It's amazing how powerful those mentors can be when they're there at the right moment, the right time, and they engage the way it sounds like he did. That is that's powerful. Um, and with an open so, heart, like an open heart. Right. Yeah, and like he was open-hearted, and I, I, you know, I knew and I knew enough to know that I needed help. You know, I wanted to be good at it, and I recognized that I wasn't, and I accepted help. Because um, I, I, I mean, there were there were moments, especially in year one, where I didn't know that I was going to make it. <laughs> I really, yeah, I, you know, I didn't know, but John had a lot had a lot to do with with turning things around when you when you became you know when you went into a role where you now were coaching teachers did you find yourself channeling your inner john oh yeah every day i say stuff literally every day that john that john taught me uh-huh. uh, abundancy really abundancy and redundancy that is mm-hmm. a john Bowley quote that i use i'm sure i've used you know if you've heard me use before it's just you know, thinking about the ways our students and engage and, and re-engage texts with purpose. And, you know, John, John taught me that. And there's like one of them, like one, one little, you know, knowledge gem that I, that I go to on a daily. I love that. Abundancy and redundancy. We're going to unpack that in a little bit. Sure. Before we get, uh, before we go too much further down this path, I want to kind of circle back for a second. Um, 
you know, you went from Peace Corps fellows and you got the emergency license to teach and you mm-hmm. stepped into it. How did you fall into a classroom or how did you land in a classroom to work with, with multilingual students, with students who are learning English? Like how did, how did that come to be? I mean, it was a little bit by accident in the sense that like I, um, <laughs> when, I, when I joined the Peace Corps fellows, they had two cohorts that I was interested in pursuing. Mm-hmm. Um, one of them was like a bilingual education cohort and coming from, coming back from, from Guatemala, I was like, oh yeah, that sounds super interesting to me. And the other one was the ESL cohort and, you know, teaching English as a second language. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I didn't know at that time that I had the disposition to be an elementary teacher. Uh, and that's what the bilingual program offered was, you know, elementary preparation um, in a bilingual classroom. And, you know, and that, that was a, a little bit of a fork in the road in the sense that, like, I, I, I really liked the idea of being a, a, a bilingual teacher. And little did I know that eventually would, I would evolve into a bilingual teacher. But um, I, I instead chose, you know, the ESL cohort because I just felt like I would be more effective working in the, in, in the in secondary, you know, despite having a K through 12 license, um, I didn't feel as, as relevant or we were prepared, um, you know, to serve in, in an elementary space. Now, I think about that a lot differently now, you know, I spend, a, I spend um, a fair chunk of my time serving in elementary schools and I quite like it. And so <laughs> I, I wonder if that would have been uh, have been a good choice, but it's a uh, thumb in the past. That's how that uh, happened. And it sounds like in the, maybe this time it was, uh, you know, it wasn't the path that you know led you to a different place as much as maybe both paths would have led you to the same place. In this it, instance, it's right? totally totally possible. Totally possible. Yeah. Well, I'm loving this, Tim. It is so fun to to dive in and understand, you know, kind of how you. I mean, you have become a tremendous advocate, you know, for our multilingual students, for our diverse learners, and and you've done a lot of amazing things over the years, um, you know, putting great systems in place and trying to, you know, be more, inclu- make the system a little more inclusive and adaptive, you know, to the students it's, it's created to serve, right, and do some of these things. But it's fun to hear where it all started. Um, <clears throat> how did, like, where did you go from, teaching in New York City. Obviously, you you were on that end of the coast. And now today you're in Oregon, you know, outside of Portland and mm-hmm. in TTSD. And I'm, I'm like, uh, I'm excited to unpack some of that um, and kind of how you sure. how you made that transition. But where did where did you go next? Like, what was the next transition in your career? Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, like I shared, you know, Lisa and I, we met um, in the same cohort, she she taught English, um, English literature, um, in a high school um, uh, called Fannie Lou Hamer, um, in the in uh, Hunts Point in the Bronx, and um, I had actually moved on to this really neat school called International Community High School, and it's a school of about like three hundred and. 380 um, multilingual students from all over the world. It's, it exists wow. exclusively to serve 
newcomer multilingual students. And it's part of a network of schools that exists exclusively to create an inclusive welcoming space for recently arrived multilingual kids. Um, it's called the Inter Internationals Network for Public Schools. And I happen to work at the one in, in, in Mott Haven. That's a part of the South Bronx, like mm. two, two stops into the, into the Bronx on the six train. And, um, you know, Lisa and I, at, at that point, um, you know, we married and we, you know, we had a, a baby girl, Clara, in 2009. And then when Maeve came along in 2012, uh, it was clear to us that we needed some help. And we were kind of um, on our own in the city. And, you know, it, it just, you know, we were like forced with this decision of, Childcare is really expensive and rent is really hard to afford in Manhattan. We could move to Queens, we could move to the Bronx. Lisa's from Oregon. Lisa grew up in um, uh, just outside of Portland. And and I think at that point we were we were ready to be around you know her family who were, were just really wanting to be um, are, are around their granddaughters and their and their nieces. Yeah. And so we made the uh, Big decision um, to move. Um, that was hard. Uh, that was a really hard decision and uh, a rough transition too. I know because I, you know, basically left. Um, I, I think in, in a lot of ways a, a career that was giving me a ton of joy um, in, right. in in New York. Um, I felt really on top of my game <laughs> in a lot of ways. And then um, we moved to Oregon and kind of in a lot of ways had to start over um, I took a position. Um, at that point, it was really hard to find work as a teacher. This is um, kind of in the, in the wreckage of the economic downturn um, you know, from 2007, 2008. And um, so at this point it's, you know, 2013 and really hard to find a job, <laughs> a job. And this is well after the fact. And um, I was able to find work for the um, with the Oregon Migrant Education Service Center, and I served mm -hmm. as a teacher on special assignment. And you know what that role was all about was supporting migrant programs throughout the state. And so while there's no better way to to learn your new state than by traveling all over and all meeting people it. all over the state, and just kind of. Uh, making friends wherever I went. Um, it was a really neat job because it was totally like a um, multilingual, multicultural job. I mean, like Spanish, English, Spanish, English all day. And I really, wow. I really liked it. It was a neat little office in Salem I worked in of just really interesting people. Had a, had a neat boss, um, uh, Antonio Ramos, yeah, kind of really good guy. And he took a what leap a on me. Place to yeah. drive around. You drive around uh, Oregon, you get to see uh -huh. all this amazing forestry and like mm -hmm. mountains and rivers and then meeting people and you're getting to use your Spanish and your English and connect with people and become the mayor of Oregon. Yeah. And it, yeah. And at this point it was really like in a lot of ways supporting the, you know, you know, kind of just a little bit after the fact, but like, you know, like I did a lot of like family presentations on you know, the common core, what that means for their students. <laughs> What does it mean to advocate for your students in English language development? You know, like what does English language development mean? You know, what are your rights as a family? Yeah. Like 
it was neat, you know, doing all of those like family facing, you know, mm-hmm. con- conversations and, um, you know, professional learning events for teachers and migrant staff. Learned a lot. It was a really neat role. And, and from there, I joined the Oregon Department of Education shortly after that. And I worked in a similar role as a, um, they, they call it like an education specialist, but it's the name of the role. But I, I served multilingual students as basically like a Title III officer for the, for the Oregon Department of Education. And that was similar in the sense I did a lot of traveling and a lot of, you know, like system supports for, for school districts and Title III monitoring visits. That was less exciting, that part. <laughs> I, didn't, <laughs> I didn't like the bureaucratic part of it. I, I know that's not part of my skill set. Yeah. You know, technical stuff. It was, not, not it was the work that needed to be done that, that you, you know, you had to do. I'm curious about that transition when, you know, I mean, it sounds like it was hard in general anyways, but then to, to go from, you know, being able to, you you were in flow, right? Like you were in your moment, you were loving your job, really enjoying it. You're in the classroom with these students you just, you know, care so much about and you enjoyed, you know, helping them along their journey. And then, you know, that transition to then becoming the Tosa and serving migrant students, Mm -hmm. Well, and, and their families and um, that that probably was an, a pretty interesting transition for you because you went from having a classroom, but like still advocating and working to serve students to, you know, you, I mean, you're doing very similar things, but in a very different way, I guess, or, you know, maybe talk a little bit about that transition, if you don't mind, and kind of how that led you to move into the Title III role, um, as far as the work in general that you were doing, if you don't mind. Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of opportunity to bring that like equity lens to mm-hmm. like programs and policy. And I was really hopeful for that going into the role. And, and in fact, our, our leadership at the Oregon Department of Education at that time was like really into that. Uh, we had a, 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 they technically call them a deputy superintendent, but effectively they're the, you know, the, the, the chief executive officer of, yeah. you know, of Oregon schools. Technically, that's the, the governor's responsibility. But in this case, the deputy superintendent was a man named Rob Saxton. And Rob was formerly the superintendent of the Tiger Tualatin School District, um, where I currently work. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in his capacity in Tiger Tualatin had really started kind of like the equity conversation um, in I mean, really in a bedroom community of Portland, right? And, and what was previously a very, you know, white, you know, um, suburban space, right? Um, mm-hmm. He kind of brought that equity lens to the Oregon Department of Education and and, and encouraged us in so many ways to, to, to use that as a critical, you know, as a critical lens for examining the ways in which we're, we're creating inclusive systems, mm-hmm. you know, and that was cool. That was actually a, a just like a, a wonderful space to step into because, you know, if you look at, you know, title three is a great example of like well-intentioned policy. Right. And, right. but in its application, 
you know, there's, there's far too many students that are, you know, getting like pulled out of their, of their, their classrooms to, again, receive well-intentioned services, but in an exclusive way. Right. And, you know, some might make the argument that, well, it's temporary, you know, it's short term and that, you know, once they have enough English, you know, and then they can, you know, be fully mainstreamed. And uh, no, that doesn't, <laughs> that doesn't work for me. We, we can do better, you know, to, to offer, you know, service in the least restrictive environment. We, could, we can do better to think critically about bending our systems to reach students in a more human way. And, and so one of my mentors in Tegetwad, and she calls it humanizing our systems. You know, like, are we really thinking about the ways in which our students experience our services? Because I don't know about you, but I imagine it doesn't feel really good to, <laughs> to go to, again, well-intentioned services like reading interventions and ELD, knowing full well that my peers are doing kind of like cool, you know, enrichment slash extension things, you know, back in their classes, right. you know, you know, and that's the sort of, that, that there is the opportunity, right? You know, like what could be, what could have been like a role that is like bureaucratic and fully policy oriented. You know, I did feel empowered to, to, you know, bring an equity lens, you know, to my colleagues throughout the state. And my primary, I had two primary responsibilities at the Oregon Department of Education. One was supporting the adoption and the implementation of the uh, the Oregon English Language Proficiency Standards. It's part, we're part of the, the ELPA 21 consortium, yeah. which, are, which are basically um, language language rich standards with correspondences to the Common Core. And then, secondly, was the the development and the adoption of the Oregon State Seal of Biliteracy. Um, so, like for me, like again, like really neat applications of, of a skill set that I got to develop in, in New York City and kind of apply, you know, um, yeah. through a policy and systems lens in Oregon. How crazy to be able to make that transition, right? Like to go from teaching in the classroom in New York City and then you come and you move into that, that TOSA position and then you move into <laughs> the title three role for the state, you know, where yeah. you're a part of some of those big policy shifts that are a focus to become more inclusive and provide a more equitable experience to these students. It's just amazing. It's, it's, uh, I almost feel like you couldn't draw it up necessarily in advance <laughs> that, Oh, I'm going to do this and then I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. Um, it felt natural in a lot of ways. Right. Um, you know, despite sort of, you know, longing for like the simplicity of my former role. Like I did mm -hmm. experience quite a bit of that. Um, Cause it, you know, it's a lot more straightforward. <laughs> so it's also like, there are like technical parts of, of shifting systems, right? I mean, honestly, mm -hmm. in order to meet like kind of the spirit and the letter of the common core, a lot of things had to change. Yeah. You know, and then we think about like, for instance, a student's experience in in a mainstream ELA class at a, in a high school, boy, I mean, like if we're really going to, to think about 
you know, supporting multilingual learners, like there's, there's a lot to consider in terms of how students are thinking, how we're supporting them, you know, and access to text, how they're, how we set up supports as they process text, um, how we set up tasks that are, that encourage student interaction in a meaningful way, how we support their writing, uh, that the, the, I like to think about it, and John Balby would say the same thing as like, because he taught me this, is like, is really exploring classroom content as like language rich opportunities for like development. You know, thinking about like, where are the English language development opportunities, you know, in my, in my content standards. And I, I got to think about that a lot in my, in my role at at ODE and it really, and then frankly, like I, I didn't start thinking about it there. It was really about the, the theme of inclusion and access that was, mm -hmm. was primary to me as a, as a classroom teacher serving multilingual students. So getting to sort of expand the scope of that, right. Um, you know, through, right. through policy and implementation support and, um, was a real opportunity for me. Yeah, that's really quite amazing when it comes down to it, right? To have had that experience in the classroom to inform you so much in this work and to be able to help drive and build that passion for yourself. I, I'm wondering, yeah, I mean, I, I can see how we got to this point and I love, you know, really appreciate you indulging us and in like sharing your story and, sure. and kind of going through some of that. I, I guess... Mm -hmm. Um, when it comes to access and inclusion, mm -hmm. you know, why has, like, why is that work? Like, why has it become so paramount for you? Why is it so important to you? Because we're not there yet. Mm -hmm. You know, and then like, I've seen, the, I, I've seen firsthand what it looks like for, for students to be, you know, left on the, left on the outside. Right. And, mm -hmm. um, and frankly, I still see it. You know, like our mental models are really powerful, Justin. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about the power of the imprint that you have from the ways in which you were you grew up as a student. And you close your eyes and you think about where's the teacher? The front of the classroom, of course. <laughs> Who's doing all the talking? Yeah. Yeah. And that imprint, that imprint not us, is, not yeah, us. It wasn't not a, <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. You know, and, and that imprint is, 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 is real. Right. And, and so yeah. when we think about this from the perspective of unlearning, right, there's a lot that we need to like challenge and address in, 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 in terms of like our very assumptions yeah. of what teaching and learning looks like, sounds like, feels like. And, you know, you think about like who, you know, in our classrooms are, you know, are, are largely in teaching roles or predominantly, you know, white middle-class people that probably didn't grow up in a very multilingual space. And again, this is like the power of imprint. Yeah. And so it, it really, yes, yes, it is a question of like, pedagogy and an, an instructional practice like there are very technical things that we can do to make our classrooms more accessible but if the if the answer were that i think it'd be a lot <laughs> a lot simpler right if it were yeah. just that it, it really 
it, it is a a mind shift as well. Yeah. You know, it is a a shift of thinking about okay, like what assumptions am I making in terms of who is able to access these themes from like a socio-cultural lens, right? From right. if you think right. about like cultural relevance, mm -hmm. um, and and yes, of course, you know, from a from a, a language lens too, you know. Thirdly, is it interesting <laughs> or, or relevant to our kids? I, I do think that there are deeper imprints. There are deeper, deeper themes at play, you know, just beyond, you know, scaffolds and, and sentence frames. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting to think about how important mindset is right? yeah. and, the, and that perspective. I. <clears throat> I'm rereading a book right now. I like finished it and then went right back into it again called the, um, the gap and the gain. And, it, and it talks about, you know, measuring backwards instead of forwards all the time. It, it's easy for all of us to get caught in this, in this thought where we keep moving the benchmark and we keep looking at like where we're trying to get to and we kind of never get there. <laughs> and, and, you know, the more asset-based approach is to actually instead look at, like, look at the growth you've made, look at the gain rather than looking at the gap. And, you know, it's, you know, I think about my relationship with my oldest son and, and, you know, there were some things that I was kind of in the gap with him on. And when I started kind of making that shift and like super intentionally, it's not easy at all, <laughs> but like starting to try and make that shift myself, all of a sudden our relationship improved so much. And all of a sudden it seemed like what I said mattered to him and what I, when I wanted to teach him something, he wanted to learn it. And it was just so interesting. The difference of when I was in the gap with him and when I was in the, you know, can you, can you illustrate, can you illustrate a gap for instance? Like, can you give me an example of what a gap might look like? Yeah. Um, so, so for example, a gap might be, uh, I want Hawk, you know, who's my oldest son. I want him to, um, I just wanted him to get his basketball cards off the ground. Like that was all I wanted him to do. He had basketball cards all over the place. He's always trying to make these, like he, he puts the cards and he makes the trades and he's looking at the salary cap. Like he is so into basketball. It's pretty, pretty awesome. But, awesome. but he didn't, he didn't have a way to necessarily put away the cards, but I wanted it, but he had a box, like pick him up, put him away. Like anyways, it was just one, one small little thing. Maybe it's not even the best example, but, but I was so in the gap with him because he was not making any progress with this. And it was like, you cannot play in your next game or, you know, we like, we're not going to do anything with friends until we can get this done. And finally I realized that I was in the gap because I was looking at what he wasn't doing and what he hadn't necessarily done, but I hadn't really given him a tool to do something differently yeah. and to make progress with. And so we got on Amazon, we figured out a folder that he could buy where he could put his, we, you know, he could put his money towards and buy a, a, a folder and put his cards in. And, and it still took a long time to get all those cards off the floor and get them in the folder. But now I could start to recognize like some of the game it, and it happens even more so with his siblings and like, you know, there's that sibling rivalry thing is real, right? Like <laughs> that is, that is a real thing. And, and when I focused on what he was doing wrong, um, 
it would, we just couldn't get on the same page. I would be met with a blank stare. But when I focus on how talented I think he is or how kind I think he is and how surprised I was at this, all of a sudden it, there was a shift there because I was able to recognize what he was good at. And like, we need that in our home with our, you know, with, with our kids too, not just with you and your buddies. I mean, uh, anyways, I don't know if that's a good example. No, it is. It's actually a really great example. And like something that I'm taking away from that is that you invited him into the process. Right. Right. And like you offered him, you, you offered him basically, you know, like a, a scaffold. Here is a way that you can take care of the things that you care about. Right. And in so in so doing, right, this is kind of what I need from you as 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 well. Here's the expectation. However, I, what I appreciate about that is the is the kind of like stepping back and thinking about like where is the invitation? Yeah. And you know, like what is it? Like let's collectively, you know, find find a solution. Why do we focus so much? It feels like in education. I know we're we're you know. It seems like everyone's really working hard to make that shift to be more asset based or assets focused. Um, why is it so natural for us to go kind of the opposite and focus on, you know, from a deficit based perspective? Yeah. Because like, it's a lot easier to focus on the content, right. than it is to focus on the mm-hmm. 30 individuals with <laughs> all of these different needs. Right. right. Uh, it's, it's daunting, you know, like, like think about the, like the, the job that like a high school ELA teacher has, you know, she serves anywhere from 120 to 150 kids. Right. That is not a recipe. A <laughs> yeah. You know, that is, that is tough sledding, you know, that's not mm-hmm. easy. And, um, and so I, again, like I, I think that like teachers have like a tremendous, you know, like task, you know, uh, it's, it's really hard work when you, when you negotiate the complexities of all of those needs of all of those individuals and, you know, your sincere desire to, to for them to, to master the standards. And so when you say, you know, the, why do we go to the, to the deficit? I, I, I don't, I don't cast any, any blame there, you right. know, like, I, I think it's, I'm more inclined to look at the system and think about all the ways in which we situate, you know, students and, and, and teachers, you know, like, how can we, what more could we do to situate them for success? Yeah, it's a lot easier, I feel like, to focus on that gap, right? Uh, I kind of used as a, as a descriptive mm-hmm. earlier, it's easier to focus on what's you know, where we want to be and, you know, you're not there yet. Right. And where the gain is, is it takes more work. It, it, you have to be more intentional. We have to make sure that we have processes in place that allow us to measure backwards or to be able to you know, demonstrate where a student is today and recognize and celebrate that. Right. Um, Indeed. That, that yeah. hard. That, you know, it seems like that can be hard. So, so what, um, I know Tim that we're probably getting to the end of the time that, yeah, uh, that you have that we can we can kind of be going through this. So so you know maybe maybe just uh, let's wrap up on on this note on you know kind sure. of focusing on 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 assets and being inclusive and kind of thinking through that. Um, you know, 
if if you were a first year teacher or a second year teacher or or if you were meeting with them and you were channeling your inner John Valdi, what would what would you say to that teacher to help them focus on their students' assets when they are drinking from a fire hose already? Right? Like how do you do that? How do you make that kind of a transition? You know, I I would first you know, I'd recognize that, you know, my colleagues that, that get into the, to the profession do so because they love working with students. They, they love, you know, you know, serving their community and they, and they, they know that they bring value because of the ways in which they connect with, with kids. And so first, first and foremost, I, I kind of, I appreciate that. I elevate that. I encourage my colleagues to amplify it. Right. Um, it's that sort of love and connection to, to students that really is primary. But beyond that, I, I really encourage, I think probably, you know, like two more things for my colleagues and that are, that are emergent in their practice. Is that we're better together. We're better when we're, we're thinking collectively. Find a partner with whom you work really well. Look for opportunities to expand your own zone of proximal development when you think about the ways in which you grow your own practice. So, you know, when you think about it in terms of a professional learning community or a grade team, you know, recognize the value that you bring, right, into the team and also think about all the stuff that you can, you know, learn from, from your colleagues, you know, not all of it's going to be good, (laughs) but, but, but there are a lot of, there's a lot to learn from, from our our colleagues that, um, you know, have, have been at this for a while, you know? Um, And so looking for those collaborations, especially collaborations that are really centered on, on, on students and and student growth um, that, that is a really um, a crucial ingredient and um, you know, sort of success criteria. The, the third thing I think that is worth mentioning is, is carrying a, a backwards design sort of pedagogy as being very principled in what we do and thinking about um, our clear intended learning. You know, what is it that I want my students to know and be able to do by the end of the year? And when I think about that, I can kind of carry it through and think about the sort of the mileposts, you know, throughout the, the school year. And how are my students building their own capacity in, insofar as those, those expectations? In terms of content, yes. But it's, there's, it's more than that. And, and this is where it gets a little complicated. But yes, in terms of class content, but also in the in the analytical practices, the, the thinking practices. Um, when you think about your 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 Bloom's taxonomy, your your those Bloomsy verbs at the start of our standards, is is how do I support my students into critical thinking and into greater depths of knowledge, making connections across ideas, and implicit in that is you know, the, the language that students need to express their understanding of those practices to do that analysis, to synthesize their thinking, to uh, evaluate claims and make connections, you know, between ideas. That sort of, that depth requires um, explicit language forms, right? And so mm-hmm. it's really being very clear about that intended learning within those three lenses, you know, the content, the 
the disciplinary practices and the language. And in a backwards design way, mapping those outcomes you know, throughout the year so that we're spiraling all year and building those, um, building those skills in a, in a cohesive way. So those are, you know, three things, you know, you know, amplify what you already do, which is love your students. Secondly, you know, find colleagues, you know, with whom you, know, you can collaborate really in a student-centered way. And, and thirdly, carry that, you know, that backwards design lens. Oh man, that is powerful stuff right there. Um, this is what we're going to do. We got to, we'll continue this and we got to jump into, let's break those down and like go deeper on those, especially, you know, the backwards design, clear intended learning. Um, so we can jump into that. We'll, we'll do that next time. But Sounds gosh, good. Tim, what, what a pleasure to hear your story and like Thanks, dive Justin. into yeah. this and understand what makes you, you uh, become such, so, you know, you, you are incredible in your field and you're doing a lot of really good things. And it's just, it's neat to hear what has kind of been foundational for you and, and kind of how you got to this point. So we never even made it to TTSD as far as how, you, you know, how you moved into that role necessarily, but we'll, 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 uh, we'll get there eventually, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but Tim, thank you so much for being on the show and, and uh, we'll look forward to, to being with you again soon, huh? All right. Thanks, Justin. I, you know, I really enjoyed it. Thanks for making time for me. The ML Chat Podcast is brought to you by Flashlight Learning. Flashlight Learning has helped deliver personalized feedback and progress monitoring to over 75,000 multilingual students nationwide. Flashlight 360 provides students with a platform to showcase their speaking and writing skills, helping teachers gain a better understanding of their students' individualized needs and inform instruction. Teachers are talking about the increased confidence and language proficiency growth they're seeing in their students. A recent study from Johns Hopkins School of Education demonstrates that Flashlight 360 had a significant positive impact on WIDA Access overall composite scores. To learn more, visit flashlight360.com study.